According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 1 as we get started this morning. We uh, ran out of time last week as we were dealing with some issues related to John the Baptist. And I want to get back to those issues again this morning because I think that they are uh, important not only for this study, but are important for all prophetic studies as we are examining them. Uh, we want to make sure that we keep our, keep our issues straight as far as how we handle prophecy. We want to handle prophecy carefully, of course. Rightly dividing the word of truth means that we have to handle prophecy like we do every other section of the Scripture. But we want to make sure that we are dealing with um, the prophetic portions of Scripture in the same exact way that we deal with the other areas of Scripture. And here is where we, with a grammatical historical uh, interpretation model where we do the best of all the different interpretation models that are out there. And I'm going to kind of chart a few things out this morning, and I don't mind spending some time doing that because um, this is a much more uh, relaxed setting. This is a place where uh, you, we can have questions and so forth. I want to make sure we're real solid on it before we uh, get too lost, I think, in some of the other details. So we will handle those things as well. All right, let's take time for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our study. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. We thank you for all the blessings that you have poured out upon us day by day, and we rejoice in your faithfulness. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. All right, looking at Luke chapter 1, and in our outline, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, Luke 1, 5 through 25. We have covered all three of these points already with their subpoints in total. But as I said, we were running out of time last week and I wanted to make sure that some of the application here was uh, was clear. Um, John the Baptist is a fulfillment of the forerunner prophecies. So far as the forerunner prophecies, we have looked at them from Malachi. And we have seen scriptures in Malachi 4 and scriptures in Malachi 3. There are corresponding passages in Isaiah, likewise, that refer to a forerunner, that refer to somebody that is going ahead and making the path straight, as it were. And we didn't look at those, and, and um, I don't think we will this morning either, but what I want to stress, though, is the nature of prophecy as it's given and then prophecy as it's fulfilled. And I want to talk about the distinctions between First Advent prophecy and Second Advent prophecy. We have the distinct advantage of being in between the two Advents. We can look back 2,000 years to First Advent and see how they were all fulfilled. We can look ahead to Second Advent prophecy. And even though we don't know when it's going to be, we know that it's imminent. We know that the departure of the church could happen at any moment. And then the events of the tribulation and the Second Advent then follow uh, at whatever timetable the Father determines to uh, to set that going. We have taught many times, of course, that if the rapture is today, on Wednesday, March 17th, does not necessarily mean that tribulation begins tomorrow. That uh, the seven-year covenant that, that, that actually uh, formulates the seventh uh, or the, the 70th week of Daniel does not have to start tomorrow if the rapture is today. There could be, in fact, a time gap in between. 
So all that being said, we are in between First Advent and Second Advent, and we have the clearest view in terms of these prophecies and how they're fulfilled. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to focus in on two issues here this morning with respect to prophecy, and then we'll get into our Mary study as we uh, introduce Mary in uh, verses 26 and following. Here we've got the introduction of Mary and the Virgin and the, and the issues there. Um, As it stands, I think we left off with the reference in Peter to the prophets who were of old that made careful searches and inquiries. Uh, did, did I give you that passage last week? How it wasn't, we can't blame the, uh, we can't blame the uh, Old Testament prophets for not getting it right because it was deliberately withheld from them. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. 1 Peter 1 10. And these, these are just easy to spot, easy to turn to, easy to remind ourselves of. It says in 1 Peter 1.10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They were not sloppy Bible students seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They had prophetic messages of suffering, like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, etc. But they also had prophetic messages of glory. And clearly, those are two separate issues, and they had problems trying to reconcile those items. And you will notice that they were seeking to know what person or time it was left unclear. Are we talking about the same person in two separate time frames? Or are we talking about two separate persons? Is there a suffering Mashiach, a suffering Christ, and a reigning Mashiach? Are we talking, are there maybe two different Christs? Are there two different Messiahs? Are there two different promised ones? Or is it one and the same at two different times? It was left unclear. And when they wanted to know, oftentimes they were, um, they were then frustrated. <laughs> And they had to simply accept the, uh, the promise that this is not for you. So that's what they were told. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That a stewardship would be soon coming in which the mysteries that had previously been withheld would then be unfolded. They were not serving themselves, but you. That is, the dispensation of the church in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, until the Holy Spirit descends, until the Holy Spirit uh, indwelled the church on a universal basis, these were studies and teachings and areas of prophecy that were kept uh, withheld. They were kept unrevealed. Notice things into which angels long to look. Even areas of teaching that were withheld from the angelic realm. So, uh, as we deal with passages and prophecies as they relate to John the Baptist, then I think we can do pretty well with it uh, on this basis. Now, let's uh, grab a few other items here. Go to, turn with me to Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel. Daniel, so far as I can tell, uh, chapter 11. Uh, 
And we taught this as a part of our Daniel series. And uh, those notes are available. But Daniel chapter 11, actually the last verse of chapter 10, Daniel is receiving visions and they just scare him to death. And uh, a lot of times when prophets received messages, they didn't totally understand what it was they were speaking of, but they were faithfully communicating what it was that they saw. And uh, this is what occurs here as David's trembling and in, or Daniel's trembling in verse 9, he falls on his face uh, and the issues there. And then he's strengthened and he's bid to stand and so forth. And Gabriel is very anxious to get back into battle alongside of Michael. And they're going to go to war with the prince of Persia and the, the prince of Greece is about to come. That's all described for you in Daniel 10.20. And we've spent hours detailing angelic conflict application from these passages. But then it says, uh, I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. In the writing of truth. And here we have a brief glimpse into uh, angelic material. Now, there are things that the angels had revealed to them. Things that Gabriel was permitted to pass along to Daniel. We don't know what, uh, what this writing of truth is about. It cannot refer to our scriptures because the content of Daniel 11 is not given anywhere else in our Bibles. The content of Daniel 11 is revealed from Gabriel to Daniel, recorded in our scriptures and given to us, but it is evidently already pre-written in written material that Gabriel had available to him called the writing of truth a realm of, of written instruction that the angels had available to them. And I'm just giving you this information here this morning. We saw from First Peter, though, that there was a realm of information that the angels did not have access to, things into which angels longed to look. And that's what we're focusing on when we are detailing the breakdown between First Advent and Second Advent prophecies, things into which angels longed to look, the treasure of mystery doctrine that is specifically reserved for the church. Now we have the, the body of material then that's revealed in Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to pass by all of that this morning. <clears throat> it does focus on Antichrist. It focuses on a lot of the issues there that apply to the tribulation of Israel. But then chapter 12, with the uh, standing up of Michael, the great prince, the archangel, who stands over the sons of your people, and it describes this. There will come a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Tribulation is a very unique event in human history. And uh, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And there were some questions about that a few months back in terms of uh, uh, the book of life from Exodus, the book of life that Moses spoke of, the book of life here that Daniel speaks of. But what I want you to uh, notice in verse 4, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Notice that there, are, there is material given to Daniel that is held in reserve, that is sealed up until the time for it to be unfolded. Also notice verse 8. As for me, I heard but could not understand, so I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Remember, the prophets were not sloppy. If they had questions, they asked questions. If they wanted more information, they had the ability to get more information. And he said, Go your way, Daniel. 
For these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. It's not for you. It's not for you. All right. So, with these things in mind now, we come back to the prophecies as they relate to John the Baptist. And in Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, as Gabriel is speaking to Zacharias about John the Baptist, he tells him, Luke 1.15, He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Then verse 17, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then the quote, To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. This is a quote from Malachi, as we showed you last week. And the disobedient to the uh, attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, you have in your outline, under point three, the note, a <coughs> uh, subpoint B, a son born with a specific purpose in the grace eternal plan of the ages, comparing verses 15 through 17 here with Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. But we understand that he is a first advent forerunner separate and distinct from the second advent forerunner. And here's where the Peter passage comes in, because as we seek to determine what person or time these things are going to be fulfilled, we realize that with the forerunner prophecies, there are both two people and two times that the forerunner prophecy has fulfillment. We have to examine what person and time these prophecies are to be fulfilled. And, clearly, we have a first advent prophecy, a second advent prophecy, both in terms of time, but also in terms of people. John the Baptist being the fulfillment of the first advent, and Elijah, return to earth, being fulfillment of the second advent, forerunner prophecies with respect to Malachi 3 and Malachi 4. The phrases that are our clues include the spirit and power of Elijah in verse 17. In the spirit and power of Elijah. He is not Elijah reincarnated. <laughs> Some that are trying to find reincarnation in the Bible will, will use this and say, see, he's, he's Elijah reincarnated. Impossible. Even if I was to believe in that ridiculous, satanic, wrong, evil doctrine of reincarnation, reincarnation, of course, occurs after the person dies and becomes reborn, Elijah never died. He never died. How can he be reincarnated? <laughs> All right. So even using their logic, reincarnation wouldn't apply to Elijah in any respect. Uh, but he is the forerunner. We have the clues in terms of the phrase in the spirit and power of Elijah. We also have the clues when it comes to Matthew chapter 17 and the promise there. Because the disciples had the same question. Just like the prophets who were of old, they made careful searches and inquiries. When they had questions, they asked questions. When they were confused, they had the opportunity to come to the Lord and say, How does this work? Why do the prophets say that Elijah must come first? Matthew 17.10 His disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. All right? He says, that's still a valid prophecy. That's still pending. 
Second Advent forerunner is on the way. That is going to be Elijah on the earth once again. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And so we see the... uh, We see the two fulfillments here. What person or time the Spirit was indicating as the prophecies are given. All right? Now, if we're clear on that, um, if, I'm going to give you a couple more examples here of prophecies that have near fulfillments and far fulfillments. Prophecies that can have two applications, all right? And I'm just going to throw them out because they're easy to find. Um, In my mind, one of the easiest to find is Pentecost, when the church began. I'll show you that. I'll show you from Joel 2 how uh, the day of Pentecost, the commencement of the church, is not the total fulfillment of of Joel chapter 2. And yet Peter says this is what was spoken of in Joel chapter 2. And so we have a, a dual fulfillment, as it were, of the uh, of the Joel 2 prophecies. I just want to show you these so that you can see that it's not unusual for this to happen. That when we when we teach a concept like dual fulfillment, near or far fulfillment, and so forth, that we're not just creating a device in order to make it work, in order to make prophecy work. See, the, a skeptic might accuse us of that. A skeptic might might say, well, you're just creating this dual fulfillment thing in order to explain away something that didn't quite fit right in your prophecies. No, we're not making up this concept of dual fulfillment. Christ himself stated, Elijah is coming. And yet, but I also say unto you, Elijah already came. Christ himself is giving us that pattern of dual fulfillment, and hopefully that uh, that will be clear as well. A couple other items here, and I, I didn't know we were going to spend this much on it because I still want to get to the Mary material. Um, Let's go to Luke 4, if we can. Luke 4. And uh, in verse uh, 18, well, the paragraph begins in 16 or 14. And uh, the quote that he's reading from comes out of Isaiah 61. Now I have the advantage with software to be able to have both, both passages open at the same time. If, with a paper Bible, you have to have Luke 4 and then you know, kind of flip and get back to Isaiah 61. So, are you at Luke 4 right now in verse 16? Hold your finger there and then go to Isaiah 61. Didn't know it was going to be so challenging this morning, did you? All right. So with your finger at Isaiah 61, read what it says in Luke 4. Uh, He came to Nazareth in verse 16 where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. 
And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. All right, now, keep your finger there and look back to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Then verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's simply the first phrase of verse 2. Verse 2 continues, and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion. Uh, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. And it goes on. All right? Notice, though, if you're looking at Isaiah 61, verse 2, the point where, where Jesus stopped his reading. He stopped his reading in the middle of a verse. He read verse 1, he read half of, not even half, a third of verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he doesn't even go on to read the, the next word and the, next, the rest of the sentence. But he gets to, now you look back and you see why in Luke 4. He ends with the favorable year of the Lord and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. <coughs> and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. We understand why he stopped where he stopped. Because the context of Isaiah 61 addresses first advent, right on into second advent, prophetic information. All in the same paragraph, all in the same prophecy. This is very common. Which is why the prophets who are of old make careful searches and inquiries. Trying to determine what person or spirit or person or time the spirit within them was indicating as they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. In Isaiah 61, we have first advent, second advent, all in one sweeping passage. But Jesus Christ read only that portion that referred to first advent, closed the book, and announced today this Prophecy, or today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The rest of that, the day of vengeance, <laughs> that's, that hadn't happened yet. That's coming up. All right? So, here, uh, this is another term. We have <clears throat> a term called dual fulfillment. And that's not just my term. You'll find that in other theology books and other references and so forth. Dual fulfillment. Another, another term you're going to hear, which I think I coined, <laughs> If I read it somewhere, I don't know where I found it, called prophetic shift. Prophetic shift. And here we have prophetic shift in the midst of Isaiah 61-2, where we shifted from first advent to second advent. There are other prophetic shifts that go from the human realm to the angelic realm within the context of a, of a verse. We go from describing a human king, we go to describing Satan, the power behind the throne for example, in a prophetic shift. And these are devices that the Lord employs in Scripture. These aren't just things that we made up to try to explain away problems. 
They are actually devices within the written scripture that we have to recognize or we won't, we won't apply the scripture properly. If we mix up first advent and second advent, we're, we're in a lot of trouble trying to make proper application. Likewise, if we mix up human rum and angelic rum, we're in a lot of trouble trying to make proper application. So, this wasn't the other item I wanted to show you this morning, was the prophetic shift of Isaiah 61, illustrated for us so plainly by Jesus Christ in Luke 4, who stops his reading, announces the scripture fulfilled, closes the book. He can't read the rest of Isaiah 61. Not when he wants to make the application of, of fulfillment. So, those passages. I showed you the Daniel passage where the Lord said, Daniel, it's not for you. Seal that up. Um, other dual fulfillment uh, can be found in Acts chapter 2 and Joel chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes upon them. The church is beginning at, in, at Pentecost. They're all speaking in tongues. And the crowds can't figure out what's going on because they're hearing the gospel in their native languages. And they think, well, maybe they're just drunk. Peter says, no, we can't be drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. There's actually a lot of teaching behind that. Mr. Dowd's given us some good teaching behind that. I just, I have a... A, a warped part of my sense of humor that wants to ask Peter, well, what time do you get drunk? <laughs> Peter says, we can't be drunk yet. It's only the third hour of the day. Yeah, we don't get drunk until the fifth hour. But no, there actually is application and teaching there. <clears throat> but he says in verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And he actually quotes Joel too. And... Um, Quotes it here at some length in verses 17 through 20, actually through 21. <coughs> but you will notice, both in the Joel reference and in the quote here, you don't even have to turn back to Joel to see it. You can see it here. That the, the fulfillment of Joel cannot be totally, 100% complete and done here at Pentecost. First of all, should be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. The Joel context tells us that the last days he's referring to is the second advent and its application. And also the pouring forth the spirit on all mankind. That didn't happen at Pentecost. The spirit was poured forth on the church. It wasn't poured forth on unbelievers. But the prophecy says it will be poured forth on all mankind. That can't happen until after Second Advent, until the unbelievers are removed from the world and the millennium starts with only believers. Then, with the millennium beginning with only believers on the planet, when the Spirit is poured forth, it can rightly be said that the Spirit will be poured forth on all mankind. Then notice, it doesn't say your sons and your daughters will speak in tongues. That's what was going on at Pentecost was tongues. It says... Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. The Jewish people will enter into a prophetic ministry throughout the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, and they will have that ministry towards the Gentiles. Now, all believers, Jew and Gentile, will be spirit-filled, because it says, pour forth your spirit on all mankind, but it is only your sons and daughters, that is the Jewish people, who will have the prophetic office that they will have invested in order to minister to the Gentiles during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So, 
things like this help us to recognize that there, a prophecy is given. There may be a near fulfillment in the meantime, <laughs> while we're waiting. But ultimately, there is a direct, literal, final fulfillment every single time. And we want to be very clear on that. A direct, literal fulfillment every single time. Um, one more passage here, and then I think we can give this a rest. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And it may be that not every pastor you've ever sat under teaches it quite this way. But here we have it. Um, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God, and make it deep as shale or high as heaven. Reading from Isaiah 7:11. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, a house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you had the opportunity to ask for one and didn't, God will give you one. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. I'm sorry, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And it goes on to describe other things here in the context of this through the end of the chapter. Now, when is this verse fulfilled? Well, the virgin conceived and bore a son, did she not? Matthew tells us this, Mark tells us this, Luke tells us this. Jesus Christ was born in the manger. We have total fulfillment. Although he has yet to actually take the name Emmanuel, that's still waiting second advent fulfillment. When did he ever take the name Emmanuel? When the angel appears to Mary, we'll see this uh, next week, um, she's told to name him Jesus. He comes to Joseph and says, no, don't, don't divorce her, don't divorce her. Uh, she is conceived by the Holy Spirit. She hasn't you know, been immoral. And uh, keep her a virgin and have this baby and name him Jesus. Why not Emmanuel. Isaiah, 700 years ago, said we're going to call him Emmanuel. Okay? Dual fulfillment. Now, also I want you to see, that's the ultimate fulfillment in Christ, but along the way, there's another interesting issue here, and not every pastor teaches this, or understands it, and I don't, I'm not saying I have all the answers, <clears throat> but we have uh, another son that's born along the way. Verse 3 of chapter 8. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Alright? Now there's another promised son coming. There's another promised son coming. That's Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, the kinsman redeemer of all the world. But now in Isaiah's own lifetime, and, and more literally in Ahaz's own lifetime, as, as the immediate promise and miracle that, that gives him the, the uh, confidence that these other things are going to be fulfilled, now another, another son gets born. 
So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Maher Shalal Al Hashbaz. <laughs> Put that on a birth certificate. All right? Man. And uh, before the boy knows how to cry out, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me in as much as saying, and it goes on to give a shorter fulfillment. Okay? Short-term fulfillment, long-term fulfillment. The immediate view here is Maher Shal al-Hashbaz. The long fulfillment is, of course, Jesus Christ, born in the manger. Alright? Anyway, near fulfillment, far fulfillment. What person or time? That's why prophetic studies take care, take caution. Alright? Now, one last thing here I'll draw out. I keep saying that, don't I? One last thing. <clears throat> when we come to prophecy, <clears throat> we want to understand that the two main ways we can, we can interpret are literal and figurative. And by the way, you can do that with all Scripture, not just prophecy. Okay? We can take this with, uh, with narrative, historical narrative. For example, some people will read the Adam and Eve uh, account and say, well, that didn't literally happen. They take it figuratively, allegorically. And they say, that's just symbolic. It represents good and evil, represents obedience, disobedience. And they deny the literal Adam and Eve. You can buy these books all the time. That's modern theology out there. All right? We, of course, reject that. We take it literally. Jesus Christ took it literally. He referred to Adam and Eve as literal people. And uh, you have to have a literal Adam, otherwise we're not saved. If there was no literal Adam, then we're not in Adam, we're not dead, and then the last Adam can't have purchased our redemption. So there must have been a first Adam in order for the last Adam to purchase our redemption. And we're, we're easy on that. I can, I can shoot that one to smithereens in a heartbeat. The, the idea of literally versus figuratively really takes a, a big hit, though, when we get into areas of prophecy. The, uh, and the reformation of the church didn't help here. The reformation of the church didn't help because um, they kept the same Augustinian Roman theology that, that the Catholic Church takes to this day. In that they did real well with our salvation passages... Salvation is by grace through faith. Place your faith in Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice. Faith alone in Christ alone. They did real well there. But when they took the, uh, the prophetic passages, they, they took those under eschatology, they took those figuratively. The Roman church does the same thing today. The Reformed church does the same thing today. Listen to uh, uh, guys on the radio today and they'll just make you mad. <laughs> all right? Now, the problem with that, though, when you, when you just take uh, First Advent and Second Advent, and we have hundreds of prophecies in each case, and you have a virgin, and you have a coming in humbly on a colt, and you have uh, that he was pierced, and you have uh, not a bone of him was broken, and you have... Uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have literally hundreds and hundreds of prophecies for first advent. That he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Alright? Hundreds of prophecies. They were all, each and every one of them, fulfilled literally. 
absolutely literally. So, second Advent prophecies. Why do we want to switch and take them figuratively? We can't. Not if we're fair to the text. Keeping in mind, as I showed you this morning, that in many cases, those prophecies are all given together. They're given in the same time frame. They're given in the same context. If you're going to take this one literally, you have to take that one literally. And this is where, in my mind, we have the fairest interpretation model available because we're being fair to the text. Now, <clears throat> what you have with... Uh, let me roll this up now. I think I've drawn this out for you before. First Advent, Second Advent. Because Jewish hermeneutics, they love taking the Second Advent prophecies literally. That the Christ is coming, He's going to conquer the world, He's going to throw down the Gentile powers, He's going to exalt Israel. They love taking Second Advent prophecies literally. But they have rejected a literal interpretation for the First Advent prophecies. They figurative, they take all of those allegorically. The suffering Messiah, the Isaiah 53, the Psalm 22. Every place where they have to explain it away, they do so. And, they, and they've been doing so now for 2,000 years. That they take those figuratively. That, well, it represents the poor treatment that the Jewish people have faced in their history. It represents, it's symbolic for the anti-Semitism in the history of the world. It's symbolic for all the mistreatment that all the Jews face all the time. And so they take these figuratively. They take those literally. Now, the Roman church and, sadly, the, the Reformed church, let's just take Catholicism and let's take Reformed. They take the first advent literally, thankfully enough. Jesus Christ died on the cross and we're saved. They did great in, in soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, at least the Reformed church did. But now they take the, uh, the second advent prophecies figuratively. They're not looking for, most of them now, they're not looking for a second advent of Jesus Christ. They're not looking for Him to come and set up the kingdom because they have substituted now the church for that. They have substituted the church for Israel. They, they view the church as filling the world and converting the world, evangelizing the world, and we don't need Christ to return on earth because in the Catholic view, of course, the Pope is the, the, the vicar of Christ and all of this. Every second advent prophecy is taken figuratively. Everything in, that in Revelation uh, uh, 6 through 19, by the way, that was all figurative. That all was fulfilled in the first, in the first century. That was all fulfilled when, when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Everything that you and I read in, in Revelation 6 through 19 that we understand to be future, tribulational, because we take it literally. We read it and believe it because it says so. But they have figurative, uh, taken all that whole thing with figurative language. That was, and they, they view all of Revelation being complete, being complete at 70 AD with the destruction of the Jewish temple. And now the church has come in, and here we are. We, on the other hand, do the best, shall we say, Bible churches. <laughs> and not just Bible churches, to be fair. With a literal hermeneutic, first advent, literal hermeneutic, second advent. 
And uh, Bible churches, many Baptist churches, um, evangelical free churches, if, uh, if they maintain their literal hermeneutic fairly, they will do appropriately with these passages. But your Reformed churches are not looking for a rapture. They're not looking for a second advent. They're not looking for Christ to come. They're not looking to have no blessed hope that you and I have in our understanding of the Scriptures. And that's 45 minutes to explain something that I'm hoping will not only help us for this Life of Christ study, all right? I think we're real solid now on the fact that John the Baptist was not Elijah, and yet, if you care to accept it, he was. He was in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was the Elijah who came, but Elijah is still coming. All I'm trying to do is give you some background to not only understand that, but to really help in a lot of other broad areas as well. Now, do we have a question? Uh, Reformed churches, essentially, your Presbyterians, uh, your Lutherans, uh, your, uh, yeah, uh, by Reformed churches, it's, it's essentially, uh, but even, you've got to be careful because even some non-denominational and independent Bible fellowships follow Reformed theology. Um, for example, I can name two or three right here in this town. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yes, Isaiah 14. Most people think so. Um, a lot of people don't even see Satan at all in Isaiah 14. They don't see the shift, and they, uh, and they just take that as a human application. Many that, that understand the shift and, uh, and, and make that shift, they make it in different places. <laughs> Uh, some want to start it with verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. And that's where they start the shift. And they say, the Lucifer reference, the, that falling reference, that begins the, uh, the thing. I think that we can actually begin the shift much earlier than that. And then others, <coughs> excuse me, I think you can start that shift in, uh, in verse 4 and just start it right off with the king of Babylon there. Uh, but then others that try to send it back... Yeah, they try to they try to shift it back to the human realm, usually in verse 17 or verse 18, and so forth. I think that's a mistake too. And uh, I haven't thoroughly taught this yet, or haven't prepared to thoroughly t- teach this yet. But at the point of time when I do put out a, uh, a more complete angelology and demonology, uh, and this falls under Satanology, um, I, I'm going to keep the uh, all the way down through verse 21 as. Uh, as application to to Satan, and uh, and not shift that back. The other one is Isaiah 28, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 28, and that one very clearly occurs with uh, verse 12. If I'm not mistaken, in Ezekiel 28 we have uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, because we have verses 1 through 10, which is the lament against the leader of Tyre, and then there is verses 11 and following, which is against the king of Tyre. And uh, and that takes us on down through verse 19. Okay, that's a good question though. I um, we'll we'll do some more work on that coming up. But those are two good passages for that. Yes, ma'am. Isaiah 7: A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Right. 
Uh-huh. That's a... No. No, that's, that's reference to Christ. Um, it's reference to his childhood. It's quite interesting. You and I have an age of accountability because we're born unbelievers. And, uh, and it's interesting. What was, what was Jesus Christ's age of accountability? <laughs> and for that matter, what was John the Baptist's age of accountability since he was born filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, now, John the Baptist was not born saved. He was born a sinner and had to, had to become saved, even though he was spirit-filled prior to that. With Jesus Christ, though, it's quite interesting. Now, Scripture is silent after his birth until he's 12 years old. We don't know much about his childhood, but this verse gives us a clue as far as how the Father kept Christ free from sin, even as an infant, as a toddler, as a child, who, before he's old enough to know better, Okay. In other words, as we understand the doctrine of the age of accountability. And uh, that's a, that's, there's a lot of work to do in that verse. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I don't think he had Fruit Loops or Frosted Flakes or what he ate for breakfast. Yeah. Typical childhood food here. And um, But it's interesting there because the, the reference there to his to his childhood as a small child uh, has this application to Christ and yet we, we see the, the, the son born here in the next chapter to Isaiah and the prophetess that then becomes the immediate fulfillment that gives the hope to Ahaz that, that uh, he doesn't have to be afraid of Assyria and, and, and these things that are happening here. So, okay. I'd love to teach Isaiah someday verse by verse. I don't know I'd, I'd live that long but it's... Uh, you teach the whole Bible in the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters, 66 books of the Bible. The, uh, the whole thing is there. <laughs> so, all right. Let's uh, go back to Luke 4 then and spend the rest of our time here looking at Mary. And we'll do more of this next week. This is, um, again, something else I didn't really prepare slides for and I wasn't really certain how well something like this will actually do on slides anyway. All right, Luke chapter 1. After the uh, announcement of the birth to Zacharias and Elizabeth, the next thing we're going to be looking at is the announcement of the birth to the virgin. And... uh, It says in the sixth month, reading from verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. We'll do some work on the concepts of grace because that's what's employed there. The Lord is with you. She is the favored one, but it's an expression of grace. It's nothing she earned or deserved. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. That's Gabriel's standard line. He uses it with Daniel. He uses it with John the Baptist. I mean, with Zechariah. uses it with Mary. That's his introduction. It's, it's, Do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God. There's grace again. He calls her a favored one. And here he says, You have found favor with God. It's totally grace. 
Nothing she earned, nothing she deserved. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him, not Emmanuel, Jesus. Yes, he is God with us, but the application first of it is salvation. And that's why you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. All right, we're going to do some studies on Mary, biblical studies. Also, you have in your handout the, uh, some information on the doctrine of Mary so far as it's taught by the Roman Church, the Catholic Church. And let me just review this briefly in five minutes before I cut you loose. The position Mary occupies in the theology of the Roman Catholic Church is the result of centuries of development. In reality, much of it did not even come into print until the 20th century. Although it had, it had always been there, it had been there in unwritten form, it had been there in understood form, they didn't finally formalize it and put it into print for all the world to see until just the 20th century. The first recognition of Mary as the mother of God was granted to her at the Council of Ephesus in AD 431. We understand that very early Mary had a prominent role. That's because the church at Rome was already involved in virgin mother worship. The Vestal Virgins of Rome actually preceded the Christian era. The worship of the mother and her miraculous son dates back to the Tower of Babel. It just took on different names and different forms and different eras of history. And I'll have information on that for you next week as well. But that council qualified the expression by declaring that Mary was the mother of God according to the manhood of Jesus. While the phrase was considered inappropriate when applied to any mortal, yet it was intended to refer only to the humanity of Christ. And we understand that. I say the same thing myself. The mother of the humanity of Christ. God the Son has no mother. Deity has no mother but she was the mother of the humanity of Christ. We have no problem with that. And we could even strictly say the mother of the human body of Christ. If, as we, as, if I'm correct in my approach to the humanity of Christ actually preceding the manger, then uh, that becomes a whole study on its own. This is not the position of the Roman church today. Today, Catholicism teaches, and I quote, the principal mysteries concerning the motherhood of God, the Immaculate Conception. By the way, I used to think that that referred to the Immaculate Conception of Christ. It doesn't. The Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception refers to Mary. That her father and mother, uh, that Mary's mother was conceived immaculately. And so that Mary could then be born into the world without sin. Immaculate Conception applies to Mary, not Jesus, in the Catholic teaching. Sinlessness and virginity, they are gifts made to Mary in view of her vocation to be mother of God. Her motherhood of the word of God is not just an external bringing about of Christ's bodily existence. Mary was the mother of the Redeemer in the full sense of being his assistant in the work of redemption. Now, the Lord knows I'm quoting, so he's not going to strike me dead. <laughs> he knows I'm quoting. This is evil. I don't want anyone to walk out of here with any other view than that. This is from their writing. This is in their own theology. 
his assistant in the work of redemption. The mystery which completes Mary's cooperation in the work of Christ is her role as mediatrix. From the Latin, that's a feminine mediator. The mediatrix. The feminine mediator of grace. All of the graces which God accords us on account of Christ's merits come to us directly or indirectly through Mary. You see what they've done? They still acknowledge that merit comes because of the finished work of Christ. That any merit has to be granted on His sinlessness, His perfection, His work. But they, they now channel it through Mary. All of the graces which God accords us on account of Christ's merits come to us directly or indirectly through Mary. They make Mary now the mediatrix between Christ and man. And Mary becomes the preeminent issue in their worship. These doctrines concerning Mary are a recent development. One of the early statements concerning Mary was Pope uh, Sericius, his letter to the Bishop of Thessalonica in AD 392. That letter declared Mary's perpetual virginity, that she was not only a virgin when she conceived, but she was a virgin through the actual birth. I don't understand that. And then that she remained a virgin postpartum for the rest of her life. For the rest of her life. We'll show you the scriptural refutation of that next week. It was not until the Council of Trent in 1547 that the Roman Church announced the sinlessness of Mary, enabling her to avoid venal sins. Of course, the Catholics break down mortal sins and venal sins and the issues there. The most significant doctrines concerning Mary have been promulgated in little more than the past hundred years. In 1854, Pope Pius IX declared Mary to be free of any sin throughout her entire life. Not just the venal sins, but all sins. He states, We, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary from the first moment of her conception was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin, is revealed by God. Immaculate conception in the sinlessness of, of Mary pronounced by papal decree, by Pope Pius IX, speaking ex cathedra, speaking in his own authority as the uh, mouthpiece of God on earth. Mary's role as the mediatrix of grace and the co-redemptrix of Christ is prominent in recent Catholic theology. Pope Leo XIII declares in his 1891 encyclical, Octobri Mensa. And see, this isn't just Protestant attacks against the Roman Church. This is documented from their own literature, from their own statements. The eternal Son of God, when he wished to take the nature of man for the redemption and glorification of mankind, did not do so without first having the absolutely free consent of his chosen mother. You realize that? He did not enter into humanity until he had already the pre-consent and approval of his mother who in a sense personified the whole human race, so that just as no one can attain to the Father except through the Son, to a certain extent no one can attain to the Son except through the Mother. The encyclical further declares that since people tremble before the justice of God, an advocate and protector is needed where none will be refused. Mary is such a one. She now becomes the advocate, the intercessor, which is why they pray to Mary. They pray to Mary so that Mary will pray to Jesus to uh, provide the blessings that, that they're looking for. Mary is such a one. Mary worthy of all praise. 
She is powerful, mother of the all-powerful God. So God gave her to us. We should place ourselves under her protection and loyalty together with our plans and our deeds, our purity and our penance, our sorrows and joys and pleas and wishes, all that is ours, we should entrust to her. Again, God knows I'm quoting. God knows I'm not teaching this. He's not going to strike me dead. But this is blasphemy in his purest sense. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. God the Father is exalting Christ. Mary was a part of that. Mary was uh, essential to fulfill the prophecies and the promises that he made that he had to have been born of a virgin in order not to have a human sin nature. But beyond that, all of the rest of this is a creation of the Roman church. And we will show you more of that uh, next week as we return to this study. You can read through the rest of that. It's all documented. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of footnotes in here, and I, and I didn't actually print out those footnotes, but the source material is pretty well documented there, and anyone can, can read it for what it says if you want to look into that sort of thing. All right, shall we close with some prayer? <clears throat> Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you for the privilege we have to rightly divide the word of truth, to study accurately. And Father, we've seen an assortment of scriptures. We've seen an assortment of approaches. And Father, I pray that this morning will have been very fruitful for these believers here, that we approach the scriptures to rightly divide the word of truth, and we treat the scriptures fairly, interpreting the words for what they say and for what they mean. And that, Father, we do not inject our own theology into the Scriptures as the Roman Church has done and so many other churches have done. So, Father, uh, take hold of this teaching. Make it real in our thinking. Help us to focus on the glory of Christ where our attention is supposed to be. Don't allow us to be distracted. Don't allow us to be led astray from the simplicity of the purity of devotion to Christ. And, Father, I thank you in His most precious and holy name. Amen.